You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, good morning. Uh, we had a memorial service here yesterday, and I know some of you walked in today and you're like, where's my row? You're like looking around, you're like, what happened? And we just thought, you know what, we'll just do things a little bit different today because sometimes you just have to switch it up. You just need to do things a little bit different. And, and I want to talk with you today, if you'll take your outline out of your program, if you'll open your Bible to the book of 2 Timothy, I want to talk with you a little bit about what did people in the New Testament do to become a fully devoted Christ follower? What do they do to actually be a a Christ follower? Now, for all of us in different points in our life, there's a moment of awakening. There's a moment of awakening. For every junior hire, there's a moment of awakening when they go from the concept of deodorant to actually applying deodorant. Because you need that, right? Like, you actually need to do that. And so there's this moment. And sometimes that moment comes from your own awareness, you know, whoo. When you're junior high, you realize you smell like junior high boy or girl, or a combination of the both, I'm not sure. Or you go, someone else speaks into your life, and they're like, bro, you need deodorant, right? There's that moment of awakening. For every business, there's many moments of awakening where if you're going to be competitive in an ever-changing culture, an ever-changing environment, you've got to elevate your systems. You've got to realize that you need awakening in your life. You need awakening in your business to stay competitive because the world is going to change whether you do or not. And so you need to have these moments of awakening where you just go, aha, I need something extra in my life. For every athlete, there's a moment of awakening where you go from just practicing and playing and just hanging out to all of a sudden realizing, I need to practice to improve. I need to awaken. I need to actually practice, not just to play, but to improve in my life. And for every person who follows Christ, there needs to be a moment and probably more often many moments of awakening where God wants to move you from being a conceptual follower of Christ, to move you from being a fan of God to becoming more and more a fully devoted Christ follower. And so that's what I want to talk with you about today. How did the people in the early church, how did they walk to become fully devoted Christ followers? And if you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. One of the reasons that you need this sermon is because I want to encourage you today. Encourage you to be strengthened. Encourage you that God wants to come along and strengthen you. When he brings you to a moment of awakening, what he really wants to do is say, listen, my power is right there with you. It's not try harder, do better, more to yourself, more left to your own motivation, but rather that God loves you and he wants to meet you right where you are. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so today I want you to understand that you can be strengthened and encouraged that God's power is available for you. That it's available. You can have a life on fire, but it is determined by your willingness to participate with what God already wants to do in you. He loves you. He's accepted you. He wants to work in your life. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Now, previously, we had looked and, and Paul had told Timothy, Listen, what I want you to do is reflect on God's word. 
I want you to remember Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, remind the people of these things. These things is in reference to what he's taught previously in chapter, beginning of chapter 2 and obviously in chapter 1. He's saying, remind, there needs to be an ongoing reminder for us. Why? Because we need moments of awakening. We need moments where we say aha in our lives, where we understand that God loves us too much to leave us where we are and to draw us to becoming more and more conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so true Christ followers remember Jesus Christ. They're reminded of him. They set their minds on Christ regularly. Well, how? How do you set your mind on Christ? You see a little alarm on your phone? Do you, do you get a verse of the day? What do you do to like just keep setting your mind on Jesus Christ? Like how does that work? What does that actually look like? Well, we want to remember Christ all day long, but how? It's a regular reflection, listen to me, on God's word. God's word is going to be the key to putting your mind on Christ because your mind is already going to be set on your flesh. Your mind is already going to be set on yourself. Your mind is already going to be set on your opinions, your beliefs, your way of thinking, your way of doing. But God wants to draw you to remember Jesus. The way that you're going to do that is by interacting with his word in your life. And so Paul said it this way in Romans. He said, Romans chapter 8, those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance to the Spirit have their mindset on what God's Holy Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh, it's death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. How many of you in this room would say you want more life and peace? Right? I mean, just mentally, emotionally, in every way, we want more life and peace in our lives. But the way that we determine that is if we have our mindset on the flesh, we're going to be following the way of the world, the way of death, is what this is talking about. The mind that is reminded of Jesus, that is set on Christ, is going to have more life in your life. You're going to have more peace in your life because your mind is set on him. That happens through, our wor through God's word. So you say, how do I move from being a conceptual follower to becoming a fully devoted Christ follower? And the way that you actually do that, Paul begins to address in 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 15. He says in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like green green. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands what? Firm, right. It stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses on the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. He goes on and says, in a large house... There's articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay. The, some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So he gives an illustration. In a house, you're going to have stuff that's valuable. It'll be like gold. It'll be like silver. That's special. I would imagine in your house, you probably have some dishes that are for common use. 
And you probably also have some dishes in your house that are pulled out for special occasions. They may be valuable. They may have gold embossed on the edge. They may not come from China, but they may have the word China around them. And those are special plates and dishes and things. But other ones are just common. Paper plates. Those things aren't going to last. And God wants to move you from a common lifestyle to an uncommon one. To where you're set apart to do any good work to have a special purpose, to be useful for God in your life in some amazing ways. But the way that we're going to start to do that, if we're going to go, how do I go from a common life, common living, common thinking, to becoming a fully devoted Christ follower? We have to start with the word of God. And so look back with me, if you will, at 2 Timothy 2.15. He says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Well, what significance do you see in that term worker? It might remind you of James, where James encourages people. He says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. The word worker has this idea of participation, this idea of doing. And if you have your outline today, you're going to look at some of the marks of becoming a Christ follower. And one of the first is this, that you and I need to become a worker. If we're going to participate with the work that God's doing in us, we need to be a worker. And, and he says worker. He doesn't say a freeloader, a coaster, a slacker. He didn't just say be carried along by your church or your family or your spouse, but that you actively engage with the living God. The worker is going to do several things. First of all, the worker is going to begin to grow in saying no to sin. Grow in saying no to sin. In 2 Timothy 2, Verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, listen, must turn away from wickedness. Isn't that an interesting idea? See, the first half of that verse describes the Lord's part. The Lord's part is this. The Lord knows those who are his. That's what his part is. What's God's part in it? God knows those who are his. God knows those who've received him as Lord. God knows those who are the elect. God knows those who have received Jesus and are, have received his forgiveness. That's God's part. He knows that already. But the second half is our part. What are you and I to do? What you and I are to do really is this, that we must turn away from our wickedness. That, that's an interesting idea because our salvation is in Christ. It's in Christ alone. Uh, you're not working to be saved. Your salvation is in Christ, but you participate with the work that God wants you to do in your life. And part of that is we turn away from our wickedness. So often you and I are aware of when we turn toward wickedness. You're aware of that. You look at it, and, and so how do you do it? And, and so there's a participation that happens. Uh, I love it this week. I don't know if the camera can zoom in on this, but this week... Uh, the people who count our offering, uh, they got a blank envelope, all right? And they got this blank envelope, and there was money in it, but this blank envelope had a sticky note, and here's what it says. Swear jar, 50 cents a pop for the San Francisco Giants, all right? There was like 100 bucks in here. No, I'm just kidding. There was like six bucks in here, apparently, but no name. And, and, and here's the thing. Somebody was saying, you know what, I need to grow and saying no to sin. So what do they do? 
Maybe their parent made them. Maybe they were self-imposing. But somewhere along the line, they said, I got to stop swearing during Giants games. And so they started putting, you know, that was above and beyond their tithe, I'm sure. I'm sure that's an offering. Why? Because they want to grow in saying no to sin. And you and I need to do the same thing. You and I begin to grow in saying no to sin. Well, the second half of that part, as we grow in saying no to sin, we need to do something else that Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says this, that you and I are to cleanse ourselves from false teaching and from sin. And what I am meaning by that is this, you can't cleanse yourself of sin, right? You, we, we can't cleanse ourselves of sin. It is only by the work of a righteous one, Jesus Christ, who cleanses us of sin. He was the one who was perfect. He's the only one who can cleanse us of sin. We can't do it. God's got to do it. And I want to be very, very clear. But here's what happens for you and for me. When you and I resist, reject false teaching, we avoid the sin that false teaching would lead us into. We avoid getting trapped or entangled by the false sins that false teaching would carry us into. And so part of it that he wants us to do in 2 Timothy 2.21, he says this, Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Isn't that good news? That there's a process where you and I participate with God's Holy Spirit as he wants to take us and say, hey, I love you so much. I don't want to leave you where you are. I want to grow you and I want to protect you so that you're not giving in to false teachings. And false teachings were prevalent in that day. They're prevalent in our day. And God loves you enough that he wants to keep you in the word, that he wants to keep you grounded in the word. And part of our responsibility is that we do walk in a way to participate with what God does in us. So we don't want to get caught in the resulting sins of those who follow false teaching. Those would be sins of pride, boasts of the flesh, boasts of our ability to cleanse ourselves. No, we boast in Christ. We are very careful about our theology. We boast in what Jesus did. But by resisting false teaching, we keep ourselves from the resulting sins that would be carrying us away and entangling us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, he said, listen, you guys, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Cleansing is through Jesus. It's through him alone. It's nothing we can do. But because Jesus has declared us not guilty and he wants us to live out of the Holy Spirit and that power, then we resist the flesh. Do you understand the tension that exists? That in your life and my life, we will always have this tension between I want to do things that my flesh wants to do and I want to do things that my God's spirit in me wants to do. And there will always be this tension until the day that you and I die. And it, won't it be a beautiful thing on that day when we are suddenly freed from the tension between the flesh and the spirit? Won't that be a great day? No more temptation. No more tests, no more trials, no more failing, no more, you know, any of this stuff that goes on in our life. No more pain, no more sorrow. The old order of things will have passed away. The tensions of life will be gone. It's probably the primary reason for me in my life I look forward to heaven. Because I get worn down by the fight between the flesh and the spirit. We're clean because of Jesus, but as long as you're in the flesh, you're going to fight that battle. And fully devoted Christ followers are learning and growing and saying no to sin. They also are cleansing themselves from false teaching or any sins that would result as a result of following false teaching. 
In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue, and he uses an interesting phrase. He says, work out your what? Help me out here, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God wants to accomplish his purpose through you. But part of that, he, he didn't say, oh, by the way, work for your salvation. Did you catch that? He was very clear. He's not saying good works lead to a guilt-free card. He's not saying good works save you. He's not saying that at all. He's saying work out. Since you're already saved, since your salvation is through Christ alone, since you've been there, work out. In other words, participate with the work of salvation that God has already accomplished in you. When you put your faith and your trust in what Jesus did on the cross, it is the only way that you're saved. And then you and I, having been saved, when you get to that point where you say yes to Jesus, at that point, you begin to work out what already has been birthed in you. And God's saying, listen, I love you too much to leave you where you are. I want to grow you from being a conceptual Christ follower to becoming more and more a fully devoted Christ follower. That's God's plan in your life. He says this, then, next thing that we do is not only do we become a worker, but we present ourselves to the Lord. You present yourself to the Lord. In Timothy uh, 2.15, he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In Romans, he writes it this way. Paul is writing to the to the Roman people, and he basically says this. He says, do not offer any part of, your bo- of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So he's saying, you used to offer yourself to common purposes, common thought, common ways, common living. You did what the world does, what the world says is good to do, what the world says is great to do, what the world says you're missing out on doing if you don't do it. And we used to offer ourselves to everything that was common. But he's saying, listen, offer your body, your flesh. Your soul has been saved. Your flesh is redeemed in Christ. You now have the chance, instead of being captured and trapped only and always by sin, you now have the chance to offer even the parts of your body as instruments that could be used for a great purpose, instruments for righteousness. See, and all too often we understand that there are times that you offered your eyes, your hands, your feet, your heart, your thinking, all the parts of your body, your sexual organs, all those things to self-gratification, to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And in all those things that you've just offered those parts of your body that way, that's a common natural way of living. God is calling us, having been saved, that we now have the chance to say, instead of being carried along by the common, as I grow in Christ, part of my growing is that I offer me, all of me, to Christ, to be used for his good purpose, his will, what he already wants to work out in us for his good purpose, we offer them up as an instrument of righteousness. Do you realize that for many of you in this room, you worshiped your way into sin? 
You begin to look, you begin to taste, you begin to touch, you begin to enjoy, you begin to worship your way into sin, and the only way to get out of it is to worship your way out of sin. That it's at that point you go, God, it's not all about me. I'm not going to do just what I want to do, but God, I'm going to allow your word to speak into my life and allow your word to have some claim in my life. I'm going to begin to worship you above self. And isn't that the great transfer? Isn't that the great awakening, the great working out of our salvation? It's not that we're working for our salvation, but having been saved, we begin to offer ourselves to God for his good purpose. Well, how do we do that? If we're going to begin to offer ourselves to God, if we're going to present ourselves to God as one approved, well, what are we approved in? He says, correctly handling and teaching God's word. So if you're taking notes, correctly handle and teach God's word. Now, correctly handle, that actual phrase, means to cut a straight path, a road, like cut a road in a straight line, a straight path. The closest way between two distances is what? No, Wi-Fi. <laughs> Wi-Fi, it'll get there. That's why your maps get there before your car does, because you looked it up on Wi-Fi. But since Paul didn't have Wi-Fi, what he's saying is that what you want to do is correctly handle the word of truth. Make sure you're making a straight path. Make sure that you are not getting sidelined or detoured. You're going to minimize your detours. You say, well, what detours? What would be detours when it comes to the word of God? He's saying it's very easy for people to get sidelined by false teaching. It's very easy for people to begin to make the word say what they want it to say. So I'm going to teach you two words this morning. The first one is exegesis. Exegesis means if you want to say, you want to listen to a pastor, by the way. You want to listen to a pastor who's going to exegete the word. In other words, he's going to look or she's going to look and they're going to say, this is what God's word is saying for itself. In other words, we're looking at 2 Timothy. What is Paul saying to Timothy and the church in Ephesus? What is he saying to them? And how was it taken in first century? And what was he intentionally saying? Not like, what do I think it says? But what does let the word of God speak for itself? The other word is eisegesis. And eisegesis means you come up with an idea, you come up with a thought, then you do this. I'm looking for something to validate my belief. I'm looking for something to validate my thoughts. I'm looking for something to validate my behavior. I'm looking for something to validate my teaching. And so what's happening is you're taking your idea and you're presenting it in the word of God instead of allowing God's word to speak for itself. When Satan tempted Jesus over 40 days worth of that in the desert, guess what he used? The word. He quoted scripture to Jesus, the word become flesh. He quoted, he quoted his word, but to get him to sin. Do you realize that there are plenty of people in this world who will use eisegesis where they will take what they want the word to say, what they want it to believe, to backfill and to, and to give them license to live however they want, and they'll use that for wrong, for sin, just like Satan would in tempting Jesus. But you and I are to begin to become students of the word, to begin trained in the word. And here's what I want to encourage you to do in your life. Begin to let God's word speak for itself to your life. Instead of reading your own interpretation, your own thinking, your own feelings, so often our feelings, right? On any subject, any matter, we, we carry those into the word. God's saying, whoa, time out. 
Let God's word begin to speak and have claim into your life. Have authority in your life. God's word is the authority. It is what we need in our lives. Don't bend the Bible to suit your opinions. And so often we do that, don't we? Or we watch people around us do that. They'll use a verse. They'll post it up on social media. You'll think, wow, maybe that, that's true. But what they're doing sometimes is just want to validate an idea they already have, and they're using a Bible verse to do it. But what I want you to understand is this. The very words of God will speak for themselves in all generations, including the generations that are going to follow after us. God's word is relevant throughout all time, not just particular times. And I want you to understand that. Make no mistake, God's word spoke for itself in the Bronze Age. God's word spoke for itself in the Iron Age. God's word spoke for itself in the first century and in the Roman era, which in fact this was written in. God's work spoke for itself through the Middle Ages, right through the Renaissance Age, and into the Reformation. The Reformation was that time where priests at the time were holding on to the Word of God. It was only in Latin. It was only the language they could understand, and they were using it. They were abusing it to get people to do what they want and pay for what they wanted and to do the things they want. And it was a power play that we have the word of God, but the common person does not. The Reformation was the time that says, listen, well, time out. God wrote the word to speak to the common person, to speak to every person. Let's get the Bible in the hands of the regular common people and stop bringing eisegesis, but let God's word exegete and speak for itself. God's word spoke through the age of discovery. God's word speaks through the enlightenment. God's word spoke for itself through the age of revolution, right through the romantic era and into the industrial revolution. God's word spoke through itself through the roaring 20s, through the world wars, through the great depression, into the cold war. God's word speaks through itself through the sexual revolution and into our information age. And listen, it will continue to speak beyond the lifespan of great informational minds like Steve Jobs and Stephen Hawking and great artists like Steven Spielberg. God's word will continue to speak to you throughout all generations, throughout all your lifetime, throughout all your pressures, throughout all the cultural changes, throughout all opinions. But rest assured, the word of God will not bend its speaking to whatever you want it to say. The word of God will remain forever. Forever. There's not a time it won't be relevant. There's not a time it won't be needed. When you and I get to heaven, we will be in the presence of the living word, God himself. And the words that he spoke are as much a part of his character and who he is. That will never change. The word of God will remain forever. It means it's going to be relevant now to your circumstances. It will be relevant to the generations beyond you. It will speak to every era. Make no mistake, it is not outdated. It does not wear away. It does not become irrelevant. God's word has no problem speaking for itself. So we need to correctly handle the very words of God and begin to teach those to those you have influence with. Let me ask for a minute, who do you have influence with? See, people are like, well, I'm not a leader. Well, leader is a big, scary word. 
but everybody in the world and everybody in the room is an influencer. So the question is, who do you have influence with? It might be a roommate, might be a friend, it might be a parent to a child, it might be a spouse relationship, it might be a, uh, you know, somebody at work. But who do you have influence with? I want you to literally think of that for a minute. When you speak, for some reason, God's just given you the ability to influence them, make them think a little bit, that your voice and your relationship with them matters to somebody. Well, that's who we begin to let the word influence. That's who we begin to teach the word to. See, some of you in this room, you might be a brand new believer in Jesus Christ. You're like, I didn't grow up in a church. I don't know the Bible. I don't have it all together. I don't even know where it all is. Perfect. Because guess what? Learn it along as you let the word of God speak for itself. Learn it along with your children as you teach them. So have a faith like a child. Teach in a, in a kid's class here where you're learning the information and it's being presented in a way to you that you're like, I get it. And then you see the excitement, the faith of a child and it quickens you. I know that in this room, some of you get to church more often because of your kids' influence in your life than potentially your influence in their life. I think God uses that. I think God uses kids saying, I want to go to church. And the parents go, and then you, everybody's blessed because he loves you like that. That's just how it works. But God has given you and I influence somewhere. And part of our, even today, you walked in, some of you are like, where's my row? And the truth is, sometimes we're better in circles than a row. Now, we'll go back. We'll, your row will come back. We will not do this every week. This is just for fun. Uh, just for today. But what I want you to know is sometimes you and I need to gather with other people during the week in a circle group in a home because as you and I begin to look and study in the word of God, we need to have a place where we're able to share what God has been teaching us. And let me tell you, some of you in this room, you will encourage somebody because in your study of the word during the week, you'll get together in a place where you have influence through relationship and that will be exactly the sermon, exactly the encouragement, exactly the refreshing that somebody needs. And it came from you, from the word of God. That's what we're encouraged to do, to correctly handle the word of truth. Listen, in your life, there should be an awakening in your life, you should be able to identify at some point in your life that there was a BC in your life like there's an AD in your life. That there should be a before Christ and there should be a in the year of our Lord the, uh, after Christ has arrived in your life. That every person in this room should have a BC experience and an AD experience in your life where you can look at what was life like before I followed Jesus and what is my life like now that I participate with his work in my life. There should be a BC and an AD in your life. And let me say, some of you in the room are like, hey, I grew up in the church, man. And I just grew up learning about I think I always believe. Let me tell you, you can always have blue eyes. You can always have hair, maybe. You can always have a lot of things, but you cannot always have believed in Jesus. Every believer in Christ has a BC and an AD experience. I grew up in the church, but there was a moment when I was bent on self, and I was bent on self-destruction, and God intervened in my life, and I went from a childhood knowledge of Jesus, a concept of Jesus, to saying Jesus has to become Lord of my life. Every person should have a BC and an AD experience in their life. And that's what we do when we participate with God. Well, to do that and to correctly divide the word of truth, we've got to understand what false teaching might detour us. 
might throw us for a loop. And so I've got some things on your outline I want you to look at today because God wants an awakening in your life. So first of all, we need to reject spiritual error and false teaching. You say, what kind of spiritual error? What kind of false teaching? Of course we would want to reject that. And part of rejecting that is understanding this. Part of it is understanding that we not only follow the truth, but it's important for you and I to identify what those errors are. It's important for us to counter those errors. See, the easiest thing for you and I to do is just make agreements. I make agreement with the evil. I can, I can live for Christ and I can live for the world and that's not a problem. Well, one of those two is a lie, so you got to decide which one. We make agreements with that. Other agreements. There's no way I could ever forgive. Hmm? You might have shaken the hands with a, an agreement that may or may not be true. God says, I've forgiven you of everything. Go and do likewise. What false teaching should we look at. Number one, Paul tells Timothy to avoid useless word battles. In verse 14, he says, quarreling about words, it, it, it doesn't do any good for anybody. Quarreling about words and the meaning of words and people making that their distinction. In verse 16, he says, avoid godless chatter, otherwise you'll become more and more ungodly. That you and I more and more ought to talk about the things of the Lord. You and I more and more ought to let the word of God speak in us. If we're always about the talk of the world, if we're always about talk of our own opinions, our own beliefs, our own lives, then what are we worshiping? Self or God? It's only going to lead us to be more and more ungodly. Why? Because the tension of life is always to draw you closer to yourself than to God. So we work against that centrifugal force and we begin to conform to become more and more in the image of Christ. So we avoid useless word battles. Second, avoid health and wealth theology. You say, what is health and wealth theology? Well, that's where people will say that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, God does want you to be wise. But God doesn't guarantee in our lives that we're going to be healthy and we're going to be wealthy. But there are people in our world who will say, listen, through positive speaking, through positive expression, you can bring upon yourself the blessing of God. And so they will say, there is a blessing from God for you in June. There's a blessing in July. There's a blessing of God. In August, there's going to be a blessing of God. And people, you know, like more and more and more, and they start clapping. And, and, and this idea that if you just project positivity, that you're somehow going to get the wealth and the blessing of God. There are others who say, hey, Jesus nailed all our infirmities to himself on the cross, so you shouldn't be sick. All your disease could be wiped away if you just had enough faith. I have a friend who's been paralyzed for going on 50 years, and at one time a person told her, you could get up out of that chair if you just had enough faith. Let me tell you, that woman has more faith <laughs> than you and I probably ever will. And she's been used greatly by God around the world. God doesn't guarantee you and I health and wealth. She'd been paralyzed in a wheelchair. She just went through breast cancer. And just because you're paralyzed doesn't mean you don't feel the pain. God doesn't guarantee us that. God didn't guarantee himself that 
Jesus came to the world to be a suffering servant. He took all of our filth, all our sin upon himself, and he, and he paid for it on the cross. He didn't guarantee himself wealth. He didn't have a place to lay down his head. Jesus didn't own a home. When he died, no one like split up his property of his house. All he had was the clothes he was wearing, and the Roman soldiers cast lots to get that and take it away. Everything Jesus had was typically somebody else's. It provided for him a place to spend the night in his three and a half years of ministry. Jesus doesn't guarantee you and I every safety, every security in this life. Jesus does guarantee you and I health and wealth, but not in this life. The health and wealth that he guarantees is in heaven. That there's a place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering for the old order of things has vanished, has gone away. It's then, so you might die of your disease. But praise God, he will bring you back to life and there is no more pain and no more sorrow, no more tears. An inheritance kept in heaven for you. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will you. There's an assurance of that. But all too often in our world, we think, if God really loved me, why do bad things happen to me or to people I love? But he doesn't guarantee us health or wealth. The one place in scripture where God says, test me, is in regard to the tithe. He'll say, test me in this. Tithe, you give 10% to your local church. You give 10% to the work of Christ, and I will make the 90% go farther than the 10% you're giving. He said, you test me in this. You put me on the spot. You test me. And in that regard, that's it. But you know what? That's not, that's not just like saying, well, what if I give God 20%? Well, at that point, you're just giving above. You're giving an offering above and beyond it. But every believer is supposed to give the tithe. That so often we're like, I don't know, God. I got to keep me healthy, and I got to keep me wealthy. And God's saying, I'm your source. He's saying, test me in that. But he's not saying, I guarantee if you come to Christ, you'll never face a problem. You'll never have a trial. You'll never be tested. You'll never be tempted. Because you will. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus said, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So we avoid that kind of theology. We avoid the idea that God's grace means I don't need to follow his moral law. See, some people are like, hey, God's forgive me of everything so I can just live like I please and it's going to be all good at the end because love wins. And that's a conceptual idea. That's a conceptual follower. Because you're saying, hey, I want to live like hell during the week, but I want to live like heaven on Sunday. And God's saying, I love you too much to leave you in such a small thinking space. I want you to participate as you work out your salvation, because I've got a great purpose for your life. I've got great plans for your life. I've got a great meaning for your life. And that will keep you trapped. You'll be like a common vessel. I want you to be an extraordinary vessel. I want you to be prepared to be used for any good work. And the beautiful thing about God is because he is our righteousness, and all of us have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God can use us, and he will. You don't have to have it all together and know where it all is to be used by God. God uses wounded healers. You see what I'm saying? God uses broken people to do great things. There's that tension that's going to happen. But again, we participate with Christ in the work that he wants to do in us. We can't just say, under the license of forgiveness, I can just live 
and ignore the rest of God's law. We need to avoid the denial of Christ's return. In our day and age, it would be some people saying, Christ's never coming back. That's like a fairy tale. That's never going to happen is what some people would say. In Paul's day, in Timothy's day, this is what he said. He, he talked about people who believed that the resurrection, the return of Christ had already taken place. He says their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. That's the resurrection of the saints, the return of Christ where we meet him in the air. And they destroy the faith of some. Now what's funny to me is that they're saying the resurrection has already taken place, but apparently they'll still here. they're still here, right? They're teaching that, hey, the resurrection already took place. Like, we're supposed to have gone, met Christ, and they're going, well, yeah, but you're still here. So you're preaching it like it's truth, but and what are they doing? They're getting detoured. They're destroying the faith of some, if, if that were possible. Again, the Lord knows those who are his. That's his part. Our part is to walk with him. He says literally that false teaching like that will spread like gangrene. It infects everything that it touches. And in our world, there's a whole culture of people. There's a whole culture of what is common entertainment. There's a whole culture in our world that says, go ahead and just indulge in something like 50 shades of gray, but live clean like Jesus. And that would be common thought. And God's calling us to uncommon thought. We say, notice in that, that part of God in our life is that we still obey his moral law, that we participate with the work that he's doing in us. So we reject some of those things. We avoid the denial of Christ's return. Some people say it will never happen. Oh, but rest assured, Jesus is coming back. And you and I will either meet him in the air, or we will die and then we'll go meet him because we have believed in him, our faith and trust, and today, the day we die, where will you be five minutes after you die? You will be in the presence of the Lord. He's not bound by time or place. You will be absent from the body, present with the Lord. What a great day that will be. But it says it will spread like gangrene, false teaching. And you got to understand something about gangrene. Remember in the Civil War days before penicillin or antibiotics, if you got like wounded in your leg and it turned like gangrene, it would start to move. Anything it touched, it would infect and it would start to move up through your blood system and your body. So they either had to chop your leg off or you died. And that was your choice. It's either you or your leg and most people chose their leg. And it was messy and it was nasty, but it saved your life. And sometimes you and I need to cut off false teaching. Because if you continue to entertain it, it will spread like gangrene in you. It will destroy, it will infect what it touches. It doesn't do any good or healthy thing for your spiritual life. What's the penicillin to the gangrene of false teaching? Letting the word of God speak for itself. We need to avoid the denial of a literal hell. I'm going to flip all the way to John 5, verse 28. Jesus says this. These are his words. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Listen, there is a day coming when you and I give an account. There's a day coming when God Almighty, the judge who said the rule, if you sin, you die. He said, I'm a good judge. There will be an accounting. If you sin, everybody in this room, we've all sinned. If you sin, you will die. That death will lead to a separation of God if you reject Christ for eternity. But he says, if that happens, that's what's going to happen. I'm a good judge. Why? Because that's what good judges do. 
they identify the wrong, and they give sentence. A bad judge lets you off the hook. God's a good judge. You can say, I, is God just? Yes, 100%. But God is also loving. And he loved you enough to say, I will keep my rule. I'm not changing my rule. I will keep it, but I love you so much. I myself will come and take the punishment for all your sin. And I will stretch out my hands on a cross. I'll take your guilt, your shame, your filth upon myself, and I will cancel it out. And the transfer is this. My righteousness, my perfection goes to you. It's called justification. It's just as if you never sinned. You get that. Such a horrible trade for Jesus, but it's a beautiful trade for us. We get his perfection. He takes our filth, and he cancels out God's righteous wrath against sin. And there's no record of it. If you put your faith and trust in Christ. If you ongoingly reject Christ, you think there's many ways that people are saved. You think that Jesus isn't the only way to salvation. You're rejecting the one means by which God said you could be saved. And you're casting that away. And there's a day coming when God will bring every person to account. Listen, when you and I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ... God will not replay all of your sins on the screen like over there, and you're like, oh, man, I wish they never showed that. That is so embarrassing. I'm just so ashamed of that. That's not what the judgment is. The judgment is called the Bema Seat. For those who are in Christ, we stand before God, and this fire has almost happened that burned all the common stuff away. But all the stuff that is of God, that it was worked for his purpose, all the stuff that he's worked in us where you and I participated with what he wanted to do in our life, he rewards that. It's a seat of reward. It's, a, it's an award ceremony. And he says, enter the joys and the pleasures at my right hand. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a beautiful picture. But for those who reject Christ, there is an accounting, an eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. There's no other way. So we reject teaching that says there are many ways. We reject teaching that says that uh, all faiths believe the same thing. It's simply not biblical. And last, what are the results of being God's worker? In 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, in a large house, they got articles of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will make be instruments of special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. So what are the results? What are the benefits of being a worker? What are the benefits of participating with what God wants to do in you? There are four there. There are no fill in the blanks, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle the one that you need right now in your life the most. Here's a beautiful result. I'm a member of God's forever family. How cool is that? Second, I have a special purpose. We've just looked at five purposes that God gives for those who believe in him. I experience the benefits of right and holy living. Let me ask you a question. How much of your stress is self-inflicted? You're stressed because of your sin. You're stressed because of your choices, your stress, because again, you followed the way of your flesh and you got involved in that argument and you meddled and now you're in a conflict with people and now you're unsettled because you just did it your way. How much of our stress, right, is self-inflicted? How much of our stress is because of our sin? Because we're trying to live in the tension and we're running toward the flesh and not running toward the spirit. How much of your stress is self-inflicted? You know one of the results of participating with what God does in your life? It's called innocence. It's called freedom. 
I mean, you just sleep better. You just rest in God more. Your problems get smaller and your God gets bigger when we follow him. And last, I'm useful. I'm prepared by God for any good work. Here's what I want you to do. Circle the one of those four that you would say, God, as you're speaking to my heart, that's what I need. That's the result I need right now. It's between you and the Lord. You just circle the one that God is pointing out to you. Listen, you want a life on fire? Present yourself to God as one who's approved to let the Bible speak and have claim in your life that you move from being a conceptual follower of Christ to more and more a fully devoted Christ follower. And the blessings and the result of that are the work that God will do in you that impact not only your life, but the generations that you love and care so much about. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, the way that we start on a journey with the Lord, because I know in this room there are some who've never made a decision for Jesus. You've never said yes to Jesus' offer of eternal life. You've been too proud to say yes to Jesus' offer to wash your sins away. You think you should pay for your sins. Why should someone else have to do that? Jesus is saying, I did that before you were born. It's done. But today he wants you to come to him. If that's you today, if you're realizing that maybe for years you've sat in a church and you've been a conceptual follower of Christ, but you've never presented yourself to Christ, there's no BC to your AD. And today you're realizing maybe, just maybe, I've never accepted Jesus. I've never presented myself to him. Then today, this is for you. Right where you're seated, you pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I present myself to you. I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried in the grave, that you rose to new life because you are God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin, wash me as white as snow, because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.